This is Guns and Butter. By the way, the Bushes uh, were either in the vice presidency or the presidency for 20 of the last 28 years. And so they really are the most profound political dynasty in this country's history, without exception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Russ Baker. Today's show, Family of Secrets, the Bush Dynasty. Russ Baker is an investigative reporter and author. He spent one and a half years as a correspondent and investigative reporter based in the former Yugoslavia. He has written for The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Village Voice, and Esquire. He also served as a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. In 2004, he devoted himself largely to researching stories that provided disturbing insights into the pre-presidential behavior of George W. Bush. Russ Baker is the author of Family of Secrets, the Bush dynasty, the powerful forces that put it in the White House, and what their influence means for America. Today we discuss the Bush family's extensive ties to intelligence, the Kennedy assassination, Nixon and Watergate, the younger Bush's religious conversion, and much more. Russ Baker, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. It's great to be there. Russ, in Family of Secrets, obviously the family we're talking about here is the Bush family. I would imagine that a lot of people just want the Bushes to go away, that there's a resistance to looking back. On the other hand, do you feel that we really understand what just happened? Oh, uh, Bonnie, I think we have no idea what just happened. And in fact, we have no idea what's uh, happening right now. Uh, this was one of the, uh, I think, revelations to me as I spent five years researching Family of Secrets, uh, was to learn uh, how little even I, an investigative reporter who'd been in this business for, you know, two decades, how little I understood about, uh, uh the behind the scenes, uh, efforts to, to shape uh, our country's destiny and, uh, how the Bushes fit into this sort of larger picture. I would say family of secrets. It is the Bush family, but it's really uh, the American family and the secrets uh, in our family uh, that have not been fully unearthed up to today. You know, um, besides it being about a lot more than, say, the Bush family, maybe they're in the front of it, they're the characters. It's, of course, an incredible study in power. But I was thinking that you could also make a case for claiming that the main character in Family of Secrets is actually the CIA. It it seemed as though when you took a closer look at any of the many, many characters that fill the book, there was inevitably a connection to intelligence. Were you surprised at the pervasiveness of intelligence when you were researching this book? I absolutely was. I mean, I've written about the intelligence community off and on over the years. Uh, back in my days uh, at the Village Voice in the early 90s, I did quite a bit of work. Uh, and certainly those of us who have studied the CIA know that it is not only uh, a foreign intelligence organization, even though that's what it's supposed to be, and a, a foreign covert operations organization, which it is perhaps supposed to be and often not supposed to be, but that it is also an organization with a tremendous amount of influence in this country. Uh, And, you know, I I think a lot of us assume that it has no role in this country because by its charter, it's not permitted to have any role. But at at several points in its history, it has been discovered that it it had illegal domestic operations and that it actually had
had a an illegal uh, domestic operations uh, division, um, and and this is quite shocking that they were able to do this and that the entire organization wasn't just shut down. Uh, going back to its founding, uh, Harry Truman uh, very reluctantly uh, agreed to create this uh, peacetime intelligence organization. We we had never had one before. He wasn't sure we needed one, and he he signed off on it. And then some years later, came to regret it, and he said this was a huge mistake. It's interesting, by the way, that the origins of the CIA are very much with uh, the Bush circle. Um, the architect of the CIA, the man who really put together the blueprint for it, a fellow named Robert Lovett, was a uh, was a uh, business partner with uh, George W. Bush's grandfather in the investment banking firm of Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, and many of the key figures in its founding and in running it, including perhaps the most influential director uh, ever, Alan Dulles, uh, were all uh, close friends and associates uh, of the Bushes. So, so they very much go all the way back with this organization. And as I, I think I document, as you point out, throughout Family of Secrets, the CIA keeps showing up uh, in domestic episodes involving uh, the power uh, in this country, uh, who, who occupies the White House, uh, who stays in the White House, uh, who, who leaves the White House prematurely, uh, what these people do in the White House, and so forth. Well, right, and when you were mentioning uh, in passing the Bush family and uh, one of uh, George H.W. Bush's uh, former business partners having a hand in creating the CIA in the first place, could you describe some of the companies that both Bush the Elder and the son W. either founded or worked for? It seemed to me that the common thread running through both of their business lives is that the companies they were involved with either didn't make a profit were far too small of enterprises to entail the enormous amount of global travel supposedly required, or in some cases, when queried, the Bushes couldn't remember what they did in these companies. This is a recurring theme, isn't it? Yes, it is, uh, and actually, that that uh, takes place in chapter after chapter of Family Secrets, as you point out, both with the father and the son. Uh, let me just back up a little bit and say that uh, when I began researching Family of Secrets, I did it without any particular agenda in mind. It was uh, 2003. I was living in the uh, former Yugoslavia, training journalists there how to uh, how journalists could play an important part in building a strong democracy. Uh, and while I was there, we had the uh, the run up and then the invasion of Iraq, and there was tremendous skepticism, not just there, but all over Europe, wherever I traveled, and uh, a lot more than there was in the United States. And people would say to me, well, how's the press doing in the United States? How are your colleagues doing and and holding your own government accountable and trying to figure out what's going on with your own activities? And and I realized uh, that I really needed to get back to the States and, and, and do my part in this very troubled period. And so when I returned, uh, the first thing I did was I began saying, you know, here's George W. Bush. Now it's 2004. He's on his way to re-election, despite the fact that he's so controversial already. Uh, and at this point, there was already some indications that the basis for going to war in Iraq uh, were false. And so I decided that I wondered, you know, how did this most improbable of individuals become the most powerful person in the world? And that was a, a worthy uh, investigation. And so I began just traveling around the country, talking to everybody I could from uh, people who knew the Bushes to journalists to uh, people in, in government and so forth. And I got all kinds of different half-hearted answers, but there would seem to be no 
consensus, and people didn't really understand it. And so it became very, very clear to me uh, that, in fact, uh, George W. Bush would never have been president if his father had not been president, uh, and that you really needed to look at the continuity of the family and to try to understand what the family as a whole was all about in, in terms of it being a political force. And so this led me down this kind of rabbit hole where I discovered that... Um, uh, both the father and son had led something of a secret life, and this has uh, to do with some of these companies to which you refer, and that they appeared to be involved in, in basically in intelligence activities uh, under very, very deep cover, the son to a lesser extent, but particularly the father, and that this predated the father's being, see, you remember he was CIA director uh, in 1976. He served one year, and at the time, if you go back and you read the clippings, there was a sort of a shock and amazement that they would take this fellow who had really no track record of any note to speak of, and, and absolutely no experience with intelligence, and right in the middle of all of these church committee hearings into CIA abuses, investigations of uh, a possible involvement with assassinations abroad, invest, new investigations of the Kennedy assassination, uh, suddenly they put this guy, Poppy Bush, uh, in, in to run the CIA, and so I wondered why that was. Well, what I discovered was there is all the evidence points to the fact that he was not, in fact, a neophyte or so-called, quote-unquote, intelligence virgin, but that, in fact, he had been a deep-cover intelligence officer of some sort uh, throughout his entire adult life. And so we see these companies starting with, uh, he gets involved with a company called Dresser Industries, which was uh, actually bought out by Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, was a, a major player in the, in, the, in the international oil industry. Uh, and according to documents that I uh, cite in Family Secrets, actually there's acknowledgement that it provided cover uh, for the CIA and played a role in recruiting for the CIA. Uh, and then uh, Poppy Bush, uh, that's nicknamed for George H.W. Bush, to distinguish him from George H.W., uh, he uh, launches this company Zapata uh, Petroleum and then Zapata Offshore. And Zapata Offshore, uh, again, is, is, is a strange outfit. Uh, he goes all over the world. Uh, he's got offices everywhere, and he's got very few employees and almost no uh, offshore rigs. So, uh, and they don't make any money. And, uh, of course, all of his, uh, his filings with the SEC vanish mysteriously. As That's another theme in Family Secrets. All the paperwork uh, about the Bushes keeps vanishing and fires and accidental uh, destruction of records and so forth. Uh, so so what, what we find is that the father, when he became president of the United States, he became president of the United States not as we knew him, as a man who'd been a diplomat and an oil man and a congressman and so forth, but as uh, an intelligence officer uh, brought to that role by this out-of-control agency, very much uh, in the way that we see Vladimir Putin attaining power after being a career uh, KGB officer. Well, yes, that's that's absolutely right, and I'm glad you mentioned the fact that uh, Zapata offshore, uh, for all this traveling he was doing, they had very few actual oil rigs. But I think didn't he have a, a couple of them placed strategically? One one near South America, uh, one in the Caribbean, in in places that were strategic for geopolitical purposes. Right. He, he had one uh, right off of Cuba, at, put there at a very sensitive moment, uh, and all the indications are that that was uh, a cover uh, as a staging ground related to what would later be the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, from there I go deeper and deeper, and I start just, I realize that the, uh, the, the whole life story of George H.W. Bush 
which, by the way, he's never really written uh, a full autobiography, and, and there's a reason for that, is he just cannot, uh, he doesn't have enough cover stories as to what he was, uh, what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, one of the things that intrigued me very much, and I don't know if you want to talk about that now or, or later, is, is, is what he was doing in 1963. Oh, yes. Well, I was going to get to that. Actually, we can do that right now because that brings up what we've been talking about, how uh, he's uh, always sort of there but not there. The Kennedy dynasty was snuffed out, and we witnessed the rise of the House of Bush. The nuclear test ban treaty begun by President Kennedy was ultimately discarded by the younger Bush. Uh, you discover Bush the Elder lurking in the far background of the Kennedy assassination. A writer for Variety penned a column entitled, The Man Who Wasn't There. What did this journalist uncover? Um, well, he uh, was looking at uh, recently declassified documents that were just uh, vast quantities of them on microfilm, and he was sitting in a library. I tell this story in one of the early chapters of Family of Secrets. Uh, he's he's sitting there uh, looking at this. Uh, it's Joe McBride, by the way, and he lives there in the Bay Area, and Joe teaches, or I think he still teaches, at San Francisco State in the in the film department. Uh, and so Joe uh, was looking at these at these microfilms, and just kind of, he was supposed to be working on, a, on actually on a book about Frank Capra, but he was taking a little side journey as, as we often do uh, when you know we're looking for for a distraction, and while he was looking at these things, suddenly he comes upon this document, and it's um, it's a reference to uh, it's basically what it is. It's, it's a it's a memo uh, from J. Edgar Hoover, and it uh, it is from November 1963, and it, it references uh, a briefing given on November 23. That's the day after the. Kennedy assassination, and it says, uh, to paraphrase, um, the State Department, according to this memo, was concerned that uh, Cuban exiles in the United States, uh, anti-Castro Cuban exiles, would take the assassination as an invitation uh, to launch an unauthorized invasion of Cuba, and they, of course, thought that could be very, very uh, dangerous, and so they were concerned about that, and so you see, according to this memo, that uh, the FBI being asked to check on this, touched base with a couple of uh, intelligence officers, one a man with, uh, with uh, military intelligence, uh, and the other, George Bush of the CIA. Now, this is very, very interesting, of course, and so, so McBride's eyes fly wide open because he finds this in 1988, uh, at which point Poppy Bush, uh, who is currently vice president of the United States, is on his way to being uh, uh, crowned as the Republican nominee for president of the United States. And he says, oh, my gosh, this guy has had a secret life. Uh, and so it's very, very interesting. What does this have to do, uh, not only the fact that he had a secret life, but that this had something to do, it was related, at least tangentially, to the period of the Kennedy assassination. Now, I was very intrigued by this because uh, Poppy Bush has stated in public uh, that he could not remember where he was on November 22, 1963. And it's often astonishing astonishing statement. Uh, I, I think probably anybody who was over about the age of four or five remembers where they were, uh, probably not just in the United States, but anywhere in the world. And so I wondered what that was about. I'm speaking with investigative reporter and author Russ Baker. Today's show, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And uh, then there is another document, um, 
This one does not relate to the day after the assassination. It relates to the day of the assassination. And this one uh, is, a, is also from the FBI, but it's a completely different one. This is from uh, their Houston branch, and it pertains to a telephone call placed at 1.45 p.m. on November 22, uh, shortly after the president has been shot and, and around the time that the president uh, is being declared dead. And this says that uh, we received a phone call from Mr. George H.W. Bush, uh, oil man, uh, Zapata offshore from Houston. He called in from Tyler, Texas. This is a town that's near Dallas uh, to to offer a tip into a possible uh, suspect in the assassination. So I'm thinking, my God, this is a man who cannot remember where he was. One memo has him working secretly as a CIA officer, uh, having something to do with Cuban exiles uh, who don't like Kennedy. And then the other one uh, has him as a private citizen calling uh, another section of the FBI to offer a tip on the assassination. And I say, well, this is just astonishing. And so I begin looking into that tip. What was that about? Was that a serious tip? What was he doing in Tyler? And uh, this whole story of George H.W. Bush's activities in 1963 and his involvement with this extraordinary web of individuals surrounding uh, the day of the assassination, the CIA, uh, and Lee Harvey Oswald himself uh, takes up uh, four chapters of Family of Secrets, uh, pretty much all new material, never published before elsewhere. Well, that's right, Russ. Uh, I was astounded at the detail and the in-person interviews that you yourself did over, what, the five years it took you to write Family of Secrets? That's right. And so, for example, I managed to even interview uh, a man who, when when Mr. Bush called the FBI uh, as a private citizen and sort of... Uh, pointed out this man who could be a suspect, I traced that and then discovered that uh, Bush's own uh, assistant uh, had been over at the home of the man that he said might be a threat at the precise time that he was calling in this this warning, uh, and essentially that that man ended up giving the man an alibi. So you've got, you've got Bush saying to the FBI, this guy might be a threat. You've got his assistant clearing the guy, uh, and you say, well, what's that about? And the only thing I could conclude based on that and a, and a, and a number of other pieces of evidence that I, I lay out in, in Family of Secrets, uh, was that this phone call was a red herring designed actually to distract from something else and designed, I think, primarily to create a paper trail, albeit one that remained secret for many, many years before it was finally uh, discovered, uh, that would place uh, Mr. Bush in Tyler, Texas, that is, not in Dallas uh, at the time of the call. And then I don't want to spoil uh, all of the suspense of the book uh, because I did try. It's, it's very complicated material, and there are a lot of names and uh, facts in there, but I try to write a little bit like a thriller, and so I don't want to reveal all of this, but basically there was a reason that he wanted to give the impression that he was not in Dallas at that time. You know, Russ, following on what you said about the sort of false paper trails and convoluted allies and, and movements here and movements there and forgetting about where he was on the day, uh, weaved throughout Family of Secrets, you talk about legends. In an intelligence community, they, they talk about creating legends. What are those? Uh, I mean, they're basically false stories. This is probably as important as any of the pieces of tradecraft in that in that uh, profession uh, that you you have to create false stories i think any of your listeners who are who are fans of uh, you know espionage novels or or fictional television shows you see that these these people these operatives go out with these very 
extensive cover stories where they're being grilled about things and they've got fake photos of them with people who weren't really their parents, you know, when they were a child and, and being asked to recount uh, obscure stories uh, about things that had supposedly happened years ago that had never happened so that if they're ever uh, caught or grilled, uh, their, their cover will hold up. Well, this is what you see. This is, this is the way it really is. And so uh, in the Bush family, you see that they've all got these cover stories and they're quite extensive and they can't even just do it themselves. In in one of those uh, four uh, Kennedy related chapters in Family of Secrets, I've got Barbara Bush, uh, who remarkably she's quite a, a tough lady, and she uh, has written this letter. Well, I, I wouldn't say she wrote a letter. There's a there's a letter that appears. She writes this uh, uh, this sort of a. Uh, selective memoir, and it comes out right after her husband loses uh, to Bill Clinton, and uh, all of these records uh, about uh, the Kennedy assassination are being declassified. Uh, Oliver Stone's uh, movie came out, and there was this groundswell of support. I think it was a unanimous vote. The House of Representatives never votes unanimously on anything, but there was so much public pressure, they voted unanimously to to release these records. And so uh, in there were some of these memos uh, relating to uh, to Poppy Bush. And so here comes along Barbara Barbara, uh, right around that time, and she releases this this memoir, and she suddenly remembers uh, where they were on November 22, 1963, and she's got this so-called letter, which she's recreating 40 years later, uh, in which she describes getting her hair done in Tyler, Texas, and how she heard about it on the radio and so forth, uh, and that letter in itself has a bunch of uh, what seem to be red herrings that I, that I tracked down and tried to sort of unravel. Yes, the false clues, and that was very interesting how you... Uh... Uh, how you took that apart. There were so many details in your book that are so shocking. And I just want to recount one of them back to November 22nd, 1963. You have a quote from Lyndon Baines Johnson in your book, calling on the phone from Parkland Hospital in Dallas, just as Jack Kennedy is pronounced dead. Johnson is calling his tax attorney, and he is overheard on the phone saying, Oh, I got to get rid of my goddamn Halliburton stock. And that's just one quote from Johnson on this incredible day where he's referring to the Kennedy assassination as, as just some murder and people shouldn't be wasting too much time on it. Extraordinary stuff. That that quote, by the way, is again like I believe every quote in the book. It's on the record. Uh, I I don't believe in a, using anonymous sources unless it's absolutely necessary. And so I work very very hard to get my sources to go on the record. And that is that's an on the record quote from an attorney who uh, actually uh, worked in a major firm in Dallas uh, and was an attorney for the uh, for the Republican Party and uh, worked with uh, Poppy Bush and some other folks and. He was a, a partner in a firm with the man who handled uh, LBJ's money, and uh, he told me this story that uh, uh, the call had been going through, and it was a historic moment. And he was a friend of the uh, the, the telephone operator there at the firm, and uh, because they were friends, she just thought it was a uh, you know a historic call. She didn't expect anything uh, sensitive to be in there, and she let him listen in, and he heard these shocking words. And so there you have there you have not just the incredible sort of callousness of LBJ, but you also have whatever implications one might draw from that, uh, as he was becoming president as a result of, of this remarkable uh, series of events, uh, but, but also the name Halliburton. And, of course,
course, uh, many of your listeners may know that uh, Halliburton, uh, a major oil field services firm uh, in the 1990s, uh, a group of people who had control of the firm turned to a fellow named Dick Cheney and asked him if he would like to run it. And, of course, this uh, set him up for life. This enriched him greatly. Uh, Halliburton, by the way, was merged with uh, a company called Brown and Root, uh, which is KBR. Again, your listeners may know them for their very controversial contract work in Iraq, including uh, the electrification of a number of servicemen uh, through faulty wiring. Uh, KBR, Halliburton, and Dresser Industries, the uh, Bush family company, all uh, having been merged into one uh, at, at one point in that period. Well, yes, and uh, well, uh, they figure in the no-bid contracts in the Vietnam War as well as Iraq. I mean, it's the same people, the same companies, the same stuff. That goes all through your book. You, you look at the Kennedy assassination, Watergate, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same group. It is, and it's the same group that's still getting all the contracts with Barack Obama as president. <laughs> right. I want to just very quickly read paragraph on uh, page 132, because this Lyndon Johnson stuff is so astonishing. It says, There are many other examples of LBJ's apparent unconcern after the assassination, though none so immediate. For instance, on the evening of November 25th, LBJ and Martin Luther King talked, and LBJ said, quote, It's just an impossible period. We've got a budget coming up. That morning he told uh, Joe Alsop that, quote, the president must not inject himself into uh, local killings, to which Alsop immediately replied, I agree with that, but in this case, it does happen to be the killing of the president. Also on the same day, LBJ told Hoover, we can't be checking up on every shooting scrape in the country. I mean, these are just unbelievable remarks. They are are really, you know, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) No, you can't make this stuff up. One other thing before we leave the uh, 1963 and in Dallas, and of course, oh my gosh, you've got such incredible information on that. The cast of characters, the the white Russians, intelligence. How about, uh, again, well, without going into too much detail on this, how about uh, the fact that there was a kind of a father figure in Lee Harvey Oswald's life in the year prior to the assassination? I don't think many people know that, and I don't think many people know anything about that there was such a man who he was, or that he was an old friend of uh, Poppy Bush's. You're talking about George DeMornschild. That's right. Oh, yes. Why don't you tell us about him? He's one of the most colorful characters. What I had to do to try to understand and unravel this connection, uh, you know, what did it mean that that the man who was uh, practically uh, driving Lee Harvey Oswald to work, uh, finding him apartments and sort of babysitting him, a man who was really has been sort of ignored uh, by history. What did it mean that he and Poppy Bush went all the way back to the to the 1940s together and had stayed in touch? And you know, and Poppy couldn't remember where he was that day. What did, what did this mean? And so I needed to understand Demorchel. Now, there's been a little bit written about him, but if you look at the you know, let's say 1,000 plus books on the Kennedy assassination, probably uh, five of them or ten of them have a reference to him, and most of them are very very brief. Uh, Norman Mailer. Was was fascinated by uh, Deborah and Sheldon wrote something about him, but 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 none of these books got into the areas that I that I go into. I've got an entire chapter of Family Secrets just on George Deborah and Shield, where I reconstruct his whole life and his path to the United States and into the life of Lee Harvey Oswald, and this unearths this whole backstory of how. The United States had a covert pipeline, if you will, a sort of a, a kind of an underground railroad bringing staunch anti-communist uh, Russians 
starting in the early 1920s uh, to the United States and settling them in Dallas, uh, which would become a rising center of oil finance, settling them there, and then creating this little, tiny, but very, very powerful community that then intermarried with some of the wealthiest families in Texas. Uh, a whole history not even known today, just completely not known. And then and these people all seem to have uh, intelligence connections, particularly George DeMore and Schilder. And then some chapters later in the book, I bring it forward, where George DeMore and Schilder, now we're in the 1970s, and he's terrified because he feels that some people are after him. And he writes a letter to his old friend, Poppy Bush, uh, now head of the CIA, and he says, could you please do something to stop this? Poppy writes back, basically saying, you know, I think you're imagining something. I've checked it out. There's no problem. Well, six months later, George DeMore and Schild is dead uh, of a shotgun blast to the head. Oh, yes, that was very dramatic. And the number of people who, who lose their lives in the whole thing is, is really too much. Uh, you actually had uh, three future presidents of the United States, uh, uh, Johnson, Nixon, and Bush. And, and then, of course, if you count Kennedy, you had four uh, presidents of the United States all in Dallas on that particular extraordinary day. And the thing here is that really how power works in this country, this is not something uh, specific to a particular administration because there are all of these entities that do not change. Most does not change. The the intelligence apparatus really does not change. Uh, the the military apparatus really does not change. The the financial interest and their influence over the government uh, does not change. And so uh, a family like the Bushes are interesting to study primarily because what they teach us uh, about our larger uh, society and how it functions uh, on a continuing basis. So I just wanted to say that. I'm speaking with investigative reporter and author Russ Baker. Today's show, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Nixon and his old nemesis, John Kennedy, had both angered the same people, and both had been removed from the presidency. This is what you bring out in your book. In your book, you have Nixon, immediately after assuming the presidency, worried about, quote, this Bay of Pigs thing. And the CIA refused, and I think it was Nixon, one of the first acts, uh, as you point out in your book, that he did when he became president of the United States, was to try and get the CIA to turn over the files to him on the Bay of Pigs. And I believe that they refused. What, what do you think Nixon was so worried about? Well, uh, one of the points that I make, uh, uh, the, the Kennedy-related material is scattered uh, through family of secrets. And so to follow this thread, one has to kind of uh, uh, read these different portions of the book. But basically, uh, one thing that struck me was that Richard Nixon uh, had, a lot of people don't realize, is that he was in Dallas the morning that Kennedy was uh, assassinated there. And he was, uh, according to his, his own aides, he was just, absolutely blown away by the fact that he had been there uh, that day, uh, and he just thought that was extraordinary. And, and so I sort of explore how did he come to be there that day, why was he there, uh, and then also about his own relationship uh, with the CIA. And, and actually, I got into a lot of this because I was trying to look at his relationship with George H.W. Bush, or let me put it another way, I was trying to figure out how George H.W. Bush got to the top, uh, which was really the product of uh, efforts by Richard Nixon 
to keep promoting him into positions for which he clearly was not qualified. Um, I, I point out that uh, Nixon himself sort of admitted as much that he wasn't uh, that he was so-called lightweight, that he really wasn't qualified for these positions, but he considered him loyal, and he seemed to have some other uh, reason for that. And uh, one one of the chapters in Family Secrets is specifically what I discovered to be a, a secret back history between Nixon and the Bush family, and this dates way back, all the way to the 1940s when Nixon is first uh, uh, convinced to run for the House of Representatives, and how a group of investment bankers uh, wanted Nixon to run because they were trying to knock out a fellow named Jerry Voorhees who was a leading advocate, or perhaps the leading advocate on Capitol Hill, of investigations into Wall Street practices and calling for further regulation of financial markets. Right. Um, Well, you mentioned that Nixon was in Dallas, of course, and there is a picture taken in Dallas of Kennedy's motorcade traveling down the street, and just passing them in the opposite direction is a a city bus full of people with a big banner on the side of it that is advertising a bottling convention. And now that is what brought Nixon to Dallas, isn't it? That's right. Well, uh, what I get into is that is that Nixon was recruited not that long before the assassination to join the board of, uh, of Pepsi, and then he was uh, asked by the the man who ran uh, Pepsi. Uh, Pepsi, you know, like a lot of big uh, American companies with the foreign factories, was, you know, deeply enmeshed with uh, with intelligence operations. Uh, a lot of these companies provided covered agents. This is all pretty well documented, and were of course very supportive of uh, efforts targeted at foreign leaders uh, whose, whose whose policies were not in their interest, such as uh, in the case of the uh, Kendall of, of Pepsi, uh, Salvador Allende, who was removed from office in Chile. Uh, in any case, uh, so they involved invited Nixon, and they told him, you know, uh, there's this bottler's convention in Dallas, we'd like you to come, and interestingly, they didn't even have Nixon, as far as I can tell, speak at the convention, they just had him there in town, uh, purportedly for an affiliated Pepsi meeting that took place at the same time, but they set him up very prominently, he actually, uh, uh, amazingly, uh, called a press conference in his hotel room to sort of criticize uh, uh, Kennedy, Uh, and then he actually made the inflammatory remark that he believed that Kennedy was a about to drop Lyndon Johnson from the ticket. Uh, now, this is an interesting remark to make at that time because, of course, the only reason Kennedy came to Texas was he was trying to shore up his reelection bid and his uh, support base among more conservative Texans who had doubts about him. So here's Nixon put in this very, very difficult situation. He he leaves Dallas that morning, gets into into uh, New York City, and and right at that time he hears that Kennedy has been assassinated from in the place where he just was criticizing him. Yes, it's it's kind of hard to navigate just how much Nixon knew. People claim that he knew an awful lot about that assassination, but he obviously didn't know everything, or he wouldn't have been after those files. So well, it's, that, it's, that, it's, that's right. And uh, uh, his Nixon's aides in their own memoirs describe how Nixon Nixon was a very secretive man, and also often wouldn't even tell them what he what he what he knew or what he meant. But uh, they believed when he referred to the Bay of Pigs thing. And, and by the way, I found a letter that he sent to this this gentleman who was running Pepsi in 1963, and he says, "By the way, the next time we get together, I want to hear more about your experiences with the Bay of Pigs thing." Now he's he's always talking about 
about this, and, and his top aides, uh, Haldeman and Erlkeman, basically came to believe that when Nixon talked about the Bay of Pigs thing, he was actually using that as a euphemism or a code word for the Kennedy assassination itself, because, in fact, uh, the Bay of Pigs was not a secret. Uh, uh, it was uh, originally, uh, the planning began uh, when Nixon was vice president uh, under Eisenhower, uh, and, and, and we know about it. And so, so it seems that he was talking about something else. It seems that he was talking about the assassination itself and trying to understand more about what had happened. In Family of Secrets, you refer to the, quote, overlooked Nixon-Bush story. Uh, speaking of overlooked stories, in your research for this book, did you discover a relationship between Watergate whistleblower and White House attorney John Dean and the elder Bush? Wasn't George H.W. Bush the head of the Republican Party at the time of Watergate? Well, that's right. What I was saying earlier was that uh, Nixon had appointed him to all of these posts. And it's very important to note that although that was presented as Nixon's idea, in almost all those cases, it was Bush's idea. And so he, he uh, in 1970, was appointed U.N. ambassador at his own urging, something uh, for which he was completely unqualified. Uh, and at a very sensitive moment, uh, you know, this was uh, uh, around the, just before the, uh, the opening to China uh, and many other major uh, international situations and crises were unfolding. Uh, and then in 1973, at the height of the Watergate scandal, Nixon uh, fires most of his cabinet and appoints a Bush to be, uh, basically puts Bush in as the head of the Republican National Committee. And these are sort of extraordinary decisions. Uh, and so in Family of Secrets, I've got several chapters of this sort of uh, kind of thriller narrative in which you see all these different figures popping up in strange instances around Richard Nixon. I chronicle how Nixon, long essentially a tool of these elites, he would he would lash out about the Eastern establishment, but what he was really talking about was these elites that were sort of running him, uh, the Bushes, bankers, the uh, oil companies, the sugar interests, uh, and what have you. Uh, and, and when Nixon got into office, he seems to have thought that he could do what he wanted as president, and so he and Kissinger began conducting the secret negotiations uh, uh, with the Chinese and the Soviets and so forth. Uh, and he very clearly, and there's a lot of evidence of this, angered uh, people, uh, defense contractors, people at, at the Pentagon, uh, and especially uh, the CIA, to say nothing of oilmen and so forth. And, and so uh, we see all of these figures who formerly would have been, I guess, associated with backing him, including Poppy Bush, popping up in strange situations. And I do give some examples where people who did contribute to Nixon's downfall, such as uh, uh, John Dean and Poppy Bush, are communicating with each other in improbable ways that are not explained to me when I ask about this, in a period where a number of little-known precursors to the Watergate burglary are going on. And all of these things have the hallmarks not of an operation... uh, ordered by Richard Nixon, but operations not ordered by Richard Nixon, taking advantage of very broad uh, OKs and instructions in order to do things that end up looking really embarrassing, things that, if discovered, could only damage Richard Nixon. And that's exactly what they did. Well, Russ, getting back to John Dean, now, he's always been presented to the public as a whistleblower, but in fact, it's possible that it was John Dean himself who set up Watergate. Didn't you find some evidence on that? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, there are uh, questions as to when you when you read or you listen to the actual tapes themselves, uh, when you read all of these different accounts by different individuals, one thing becomes very very clear, which is that which is that uh, Nixon himself. 
uh, Ann Haldeman and Ehrlichman and, and John Mitchell, the ones that we normally sort of blame for all this, were really... Uh, out of the loop on all of these uh, specific operations. I mean, uh, this was a, a time in this country where there was tremendous unrest. Uh, there was a, a sense for many people in the so-called silent majority that there was a, a you know, kind of chaos afoot. Uh, and so from that perspective, it becomes a little more understandable uh, that there was a sense of siege and uh, a, a sense that something had to be done. When, when, when the uh, Pentagon Papers were, were released, they were concerned about leaks and you know national security interests, and so without defending them, I mean one can understand uh, why there was a kind of a siege mentality. But the particular operations, the uh, going in to the uh, Democratic National Committee, the instructions, who gave those instructions, uh, uh, who knew about these things, um, and and then even a sense of uh, uh, of what Nixon knew and when he knew it. Uh, John Dean shows up in all of this. And he shows up in the accounts by uh, Gordon Liddy and some of these other folks in terms of who told them uh, that they ought to be collecting this kind of political intelligence and going into these operations. Uh, and then it's, it's John Dean sort of deciding when to tell Nixon what about what was going on. It's a very interesting history, and it's a history that really is not in uh, the, the conventional accounts of Watergate. Well, right. And as you're pointing out, it was G. Gordon Liddy himself who claimed that it was John Dean who told them to break into the Democratic National Headquarters, right? Doesn't that that's, that's right. And when you read Dean's statements about all this, he's very he's he's sort of opaque. He kind of um, he parses things in a weird way. You know, he's he he'll talk in general about there was a sense that something needed to be done, and uh, this person did this, and there was a meeting, and you know, but it's all sort of done in this kind of third person sense, as if there's nobody pushing for these things, and that's not true. And the people pushing for it uh, are very much a small group of uh, you know sort of mid-level people. Uh, and as I point out in Family of Secrets, uh, all of them have their own um, intelligence connections, and it's very curious to sort of even try to examine how it was that people who were not known to Nixon at all, like John Dean, uh, people like uh, Eagle Krogh, uh, who, who got helped get Dean in, how these people got into the White House in the first place, and what they were doing before. And I also look at another character in the similar vein, Alexander Butterfield. He's, uh, he and Dean and these others, when they go over to the other side or they start testifying, they start start revealing all these things that, that implicate Nixon. Uh, and so, for example, Butterfield reveals the existence of the taping system, which leads then to uh, them guiding the uh, Senate investigators to certain tapes uh, that are, you know, have certain statements that taken out of context uh, implicate Nixon, like the famous uh, cancer speech. But, of course, that's not Nixon talking. That's John Dean making this speech telling Nixon that there's uh, a cancer. And so, for example, they focus on whether Nixon was willing to uh, pay hush money uh, to the burglars. But actually, if you look at the larger context, it's his own lawyer, John Dean, telling him uh, that these burglars uh, may need uh, hush money to be paid to them. So he's basically uh, taking advice in this, in this very uh, difficult situation. He's, he's clearly overwhelmed and underinformed, and he's taking advice on this uh, you know, from Dean and, and, and figures with, with those similar kind of murky connections. I'm speaking with investigative reporter and author Russ Baker. Today's show, Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
On page 235, you write, one thing that could have gone wrong was that the Watergate committee staff might figure out, and you're talking about what could have gone wrong with the plan to oust Nixon, that is, the Watergate committee staff might figure out that a group of CIA-connected figures with ties to the Bay of Pigs and the events of November 22nd, 1963, was setting Nixon up. So it's the same, it sounds like it's the same forces that went after Kennedy that were now coming after Nixon. That's right, exactly the same forces. And by the way, another uh, point I make, one of the challenges I faced with Family of Secrets was I uncovered so much new information, all documented facts, that I was just struggling with how do you jam all of this into a book. Uh, and so some of the very important things only get maybe a paragraph or even a sentence. One example of that is that uh, uh, Butterfield, who belatedly admitted that he had some CIA ties before he came to the White House uh, and, uh, and served as a kind of a liaison to them in the White House, that he and Alexander Haig, who uh, profited uh, from Nixon's ouster very much uh, and had his own you know, ties back to the Pentagon, that the two of them both worked for Joe Califano uh, in a program uh, working with Bay of Pigs uh, operatives, you know, so-called resettlement program, which really was also a way to stay in communication with all of these uh, very anti-Kennedy uh, Cubans. And, of course, we see the Cubans show up again in the burglary at the Watergate. Uh, and so we see all these fascinating uh, strands, wheels within wheels uh, of, of intelligence operations. And, again, none of this even remotely benefits fits Richard Nixon, serves his interest, or serves uh, any uh, possible uh, actual national security uh, uh, issues or interests. Conventional wisdom would have it that President Ford, and of course he was brought in after Nixon's ouster, conventional wisdom would have it that President Ford's pardon of Nixon absolved Nixon. But you point out that the effect of the pardon had exactly the opposite effect. How do you mean? Well, I mean, he pardoned. I mean, what was Nixon actually convictable on? Uh, the only way you could have, uh, you know, first of all, there, there are all the problems of prosecuting a president to begin with. But to, to pardon somebody, it means that you're, you're you're letting them off the hook from criminal charges. Now, since he hadn't been convicted of anything, you couldn't actually pardon him. So when you pardon somebody in advance for something that they, uh, uh, for which they have not been convicted, you're you're suggesting that they did something wrong. Exactly. And, and the interesting thing, of course, is what did Nixon do wrong? What I discovered in my research for Family of Secrets was that there was really very little. There are a few statements where, in anger, he would say something uh, that sounded a little bit wild. But I suspect every president, uh, there are many, many examples where they said indiscreet things. But, but clearly, uh, uh, would, it, would a thorough investigation of Nixon have found him guilty of any actual crimes himself? I mean, I really doubt it. And so the effect of the pardon was to forever ever taint Nixon uh, as a would-be criminal. And it also had the effect, as you point out in your book, of shutting down any further investigation, because if Nixon had actually been charged with something, if the investigation had continued, then a lot of stuff would have been brought to light that the pardon just put to bed for good, right? That's right, and it would have gone into all of these areas that uh, that I've been exploring. Well, Russ, uh do you think that the differences between the two Bush presidents has been exaggerated? The conventional wisdom says that the father and son are quite dissimilar. Did you find this to be the case or not? Um, well, they're certainly very dissimilar in their 
personal styles, and I think that uh, has been over emphasize. But I think it's very, very interesting to note, as I do in Family of Secrets, that uh, the son uh, actually believed, I mean, I, I note in the book that back in 1999, he was writing a book while he was running for president, and I interviewed the co-author of the book, and, and this is about material that never did finally make it in there, uh, but that he, when he had asked George W. Bush what he hoped uh, to achieve as president, the only thing he could think of was he told him that he hoped to invade Iraq and removes Saddam Hussein. Now, that's very, very interesting because uh, he goes on to say that uh, basically W. had been, been impressed upon him that a successful presidency required a successful war. Yeah, and you, and you, you talk in your book about uh, somebody named Mickey Hershkowitz who was uh, going to write a biography. Well, that's the co-author I was referencing, right? Yes, now. and he said that George W. talked at length with him and said that a successful leader never admits a mistake, and he talks about the benefits of starting a war. Uh, according to George W. Bush, what are the benefits of starting a war? Uh, he says that uh, basically, um, if you well, what, what he meant was that if you have a war and you so-called win a war, the public loves it. As we saw right after 9/11, which of course uh, opened up uh, a war of sorts, uh, that uh, Bush's ratings just skyrocketed. They went up to like you know what 90 percent or approval ratings or something without doing anything. Uh, as the quote in the book is, he all they did was emerge from the bunker practically. Uh, so so I, I think that the similarities are the fathers and sons' commitments uh, to the interests uh, of these, uh, for lack of another word, elites, uh, these wealthy interests, these companies, uh, these industries, uh, and, and carrying out policies that certainly benefit them whether or not they uh, do, in fact, benefit uh, the American people overall uh, and, and, and the world in general. Um, and, and so that's really, I think, one of the main themes of Family of Secrets is the continuity, actually, between father and son. And I really try to, to, to show how they're not just doing what they want to do. There is tremendous pressure on them and that they essentially operate uh, as, as almost, you might say, as kind of... Um, uh, figures in a larger machinery uh, carrying out uh, you know policies uh, that have you know often been described as we use the term imperialism or what have you uh, the seizure of uh, or, or control of crucial uh, natural resources abroad in many cases for the benefit for the primary benefit of, uh, of of the people who actually end up owning these resources uh, going all the way back uh, through the Bush family uh, to the work that uh, you know W's great grandfather uh, did working with uh, you know the Rockefeller family you you you've always seen these continuities of course the Rockefellers were deeply involved uh, with uh, with oil right and you and you uh, go into some extensive explanation of Harkin Energy which is a very complicated story an independent oil and gas company uh, it's a uh, complex and mysterious web and even has ties to the Philippines and Ferdinand Marcos and to Harvard University uh, I, I don't know if we can go into Harkin Energy in any depth because it's so complicated, but could you untangle a little bit of this for us? That was uh, something that George Bush, George W. Bush was heavily involved in. Right. I mean, one of the things that most surprised me about George W. Bush was to learn that all that emphasis on the fact that before being president, he basically the way we understood him was here was a guy who uh, really didn't uh, achieve anything, and then suddenly he's involved with this baseball team, and suddenly he's governor of Texas, and and 
and it, it just all happens, you know, so fast. But in fact, there was a back history to the younger Bush, and that back history has not come out before. Uh, in Family of Secrets, I have several chapters, as you've seen, where I, I go into all of these companies that George W. Bush was involved with, and they're very similar to the companies that the father was involved with, which, which have the, the appearance of being some kind of, of, of uh, cover operation connected to intelligence, uh, uh, money laundering, and odd movements uh, around the world that don't match any kind of uh, financial performance uh, for the shareholders. And we see the same thing with George W. Bush. We see him involved with a number of companies, uh, one of which uh, with the uh, wonderful name of Lucky Chance Mining, which I don't think has ever been written about in any of the books on Bush. I, I think this is the first time we, uh, that anyone goes into that. And, you know, all of these companies have these strange compositions. There, there's, there, there always seems to be money coming from the most sort of unsavory regimes, the, the you know, apartheid regime in South Africa, and as you point out, Marcos, and money tied to the Shah of Iran, and uh, these strange Swiss banks, and uh, arms traffickers, and BCCI, and you, know, you look at these companies and you say, that is the strangest combination of investors. You know, what about the policies of George W. Bush as governor of Texas and president of the United States? Were these policies reflected of how he lived his own life? Uh, certainly not. Um, uh, one of the themes of the, the second half of Family of Secrets is how uh, the uh, group of people uh, propelling George W. Bush were able to kind of construct their own uh, news environment, if you will, and, uh, and, to, and to focus people on what, what they wanted to talk about. Uh, and then we see that the ultimate expression of the, the hypocrisy and the ability to spin the media and prevent the, the damaging truth from getting out is the story of George W. Bush's failure to complete his military service during the Vietnam War. When he became president and he started the war on terror and the uh, invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, I would imagine that a lot of the people in the National Guard never thought that they'd be serving overseas in a war. Uh, how, How would you contrast George W. Bush's service in the National Guard with what he expected the National Guard to do when he became president? Well, you see, this is the uh, dirty little secret of that whole story. This is what, had this come out, there is no way that he could have been elected president, that no way he could have been reelected, because his own base, uh, who are very much uh, self-identified as uh, uh, is very concerned about military issues, retired military, and uh, people who self-described to consider themselves very patriotic and very oriented in that direction, uh, they would not have found this supportable at all, that he, uh, during the Vietnam War, he and his family were all outspoken supporters of the war, uh, and yet he managed to get into the safe, very elite unit in Houston, which was a National Guard unit that would not expose him to going to Vietnam. And then he doesn't complete the final two years of a six-year obligation there. Uh, and, And certainly, back in those days, as more recently, people who joined the National Guard had no expectation to be sent abroad. It was not impossible, but it was, it was highly, highly unlikely. What about um, W's uh, religious conversion? Doug Weed, a writer, uh, a motivational speaker, a former minister of the Assemblies of God, wrote a long memo to George W. Bush. Weed said, when I finally met W, he said, I've read all your stuff. It's great stuff. 
we're going to get this thing going. Uh, what was W referring to? Uh, the notion of embracing uh, evangelical Christianity. And um, that theme, just like the theme of the National Guard, and I do believe that in Family Secrets I provide the most definitive account ever of what actually happened there, and and I think also something of a vindication of CBS News and Dan Rather uh, for the larger effort that they were trying to make in the direction they're going in. But but that story and this story of the uh, of the religious conversion and the abortion story they're all of a piece in a certain sense because they're all about uh, our failure to get the real story. And so pertaining to this religious conversion, the sense out there was that whatever George W. Bush had done as a young man didn't matter because once he saw the light. Uh, and was born again, uh, the slate was cleaned. And uh, nobody wants to question uh, uh, somebody's beliefs, and so it was just taken for granted that this was uh, sincere. But, in fact, as we read this chapter of Family of Secrets, we, we see uh, unveiled there the, the back story. And the back story is that the Bush family, the father and the son, uh, the son being an advisor to the father when he's running for president, is getting this advice from this uh, evangelical and uh, kind of consultant, let's say, uh, that in this period it was becoming increasingly difficult to secure the White House unless you appealed to evangelicals. And so uh, what I actually show is that prior to the year in which George W. Bush himself claims to have suddenly seen the light, uh, they were getting these memos. And as Doug Weed points out, the memos were supposedly for the father, uh, but the son uh, was, was reading them, and he was fascinated by this. I've been speaking with Russ Baker. Today's show has been Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty. Russ Baker is an investigative reporter and author. He has written for The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Village Voice, and Esquire. He has also served as a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review. In 2004, he devoted himself largely to researching stories that provided disturbing insights into the pre-presidential behavior of George W. Bush. Russ Baker is the author of Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, The Powerful Forces That Put It in the White House, and What Their Influence Means for America. Visit Russ Baker's website at www.russbaker.com and www.russbaker.com familyofsecrets.com. He is the founder of The Real News Project, a nonprofit investigative reporting website at www.whowhatwhy.com for more investigative reporting on a monthly, weekly, and daily basis. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Evolution of the mind If you seek 